Greetings in the name of Jesus. Open your Bibles, if you care to, to Luke chapter 1. We expect to hear a message, I suppose, centered around the birth of Christ uh, this morning and also next Sunday, Christmas Day. I'm still feeding on the message that we heard last Sunday. We heard scripture concerning John the Baptist, and Brother Gail talked about preparing our hearts to meet the Lord. And so, in opening here, we'll just kind of transition from somewhat of a pre-Christmas message into a Christmas message. And so I'm thinking primarily about the message that John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, proclaimed. And I'll not take much time here in opening, but in Luke chapter 1, the first three verses gives us the whole purpose why Luke writes this gospel. This gospel of Luke, penned by Luke, is somewhat unique in the fact, especially of its detail, chronological detail. And Luke tells us here in the first three verses that he did that with intention. He, he must have been a detailed man. He was a Greek. And this, this gospel comes from somewhat of a Greek perspective uh, rather than a Jewish perspective. He was a schooled, a doctor. And Luke says here that he writes this in order, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order the declaration of those things which are surely believed among us. And so we set our faith on the things that Luke experienced and saw as he walked with Christ it's also interesting to me, the Gospel of Luke um, was written somewhere around 60 or 61 A.D., but it really covered what he wrote about was way back at A.D. 4 uh, through 30. So the life and experiences of Jesus Christ. And then what's interesting is Luke goes on, and a couple years later in A.D. 63, he writes, under the leadership of Paul, he writes the Acts of the Apostle. And so if you really want a good, because Luke thinks in chronological lines, if you really want a good gospel story all penned in one book, so to speak, if you read from Luke chapter 1, the entire gospel of Luke, and then continue on in the Acts of the Apostle and read, read the Acts, it's really one chronological story and uh, with much detail. And so Luke begins here with the story of John the Baptist, the conception where uh, his father, Zacharias, is in the temple, 
and he is at the moment standing at the altar of incense. And some of us may look back a little bit in judgment with the Jewish ways of worship and so forth. And I, I know that there was obvious needs for improvement because Jesus um, addressed that directly with Pharisees and, and the lawmen of the, of the time. But let's don't get too critical because Zacharias was standing at the altar of incense and we know that that was placed there for God to receive the prayers of the saints. And it says here that the people were outside praying and Zacharias was inside praying at the altar of incense and God heard their prayers. I don't know what Zacharias was praying at the moment, but I would suppose something along the lines of pleading with God that he would somehow save his people. And it says here in, in verses uh, 8 through 12 that, that God answered that prayer. And he proclaims to Zacharias through an angel that you and your wife is going to become pregnant with this baby John. And of course, Zacharias, I mean, it takes him back. And the angel says, fear not, and your prayer is heard, verse 13. And so I don't know, I was just inspired thinking about what was Zacharias praying at that moment, at the altar of incense, because God reveals to him that baby John is going to be born, and he says there, your, your prayer is heard. So somehow Zacharias was praying for salvation to come to the people. And then baby John comes and he proclaims this. He doesn't bring salvation. John, John is not the Savior, but John is the forerunner of Jesus Christ to proclaim that message of salvation. And I'll not go through all the scriptures, but the message of John the Baptist was, was definitely an intervention of God. Because when, when Mary, when it was revealed to Mary that her cousin Elizabeth was expecting, and Mary goes and visits, and that's later on in this chapter, she visits Elizabeth, and at the time that they greeted each other, the Bible says that uh, baby John leaped in Elizabeth's womb, and Elizabeth was immediately filled with the Holy Spirit. We know that God was behind of this, and and I just ask us today that when, when things come into our life, do we really see God? Do we see the, in, the intervention of God in our daily experiences? The Holy Spirit was active. John was the forerunner. And the whole entire message of John was not about himself, but it was about Jesus Christ, the one that would come. And... The message of John, and Gail touched on some of this last week, um, number one I wrote down was to turn to God. It says here in verse 16, Luke 1, 16, many of the children of Israel shall turn to the Lord their God. I'm thinking the message of John the Baptist is effective for us today. The call is that we would turn to and this was the message last week that we would turn our hearts to God. 
Number two, the message of John the Baptist was a message that would heal and build relationships. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Turning the hearts of the children to their fathers and the fathers towards the children. And that message is, is relevant today. Healing and building relationships. The message also of John the Baptist, it goes on there in verse 17b, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And I would ask each one of us this morning to take that message serious in our own lives. Because I can't answer that question for you and you can't answer it for me. I ask you this morning, are you ready to meet the Lord? I don't know how that comes. I know we aren't going to meet him as a baby in a manger now because that's past tense. But somehow, whether it's through death or through him, him coming after his people, are you ready to meet your Lord today, this hour? It's a very serious question and is very relevant today for us. John was asking the people that. Another thing I wrote down concerning the message of John the Baptist is he came to bear witness of the light. It says in John chapter 1, he was not that light, but he came to bear witness of that light. That was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world, speaking of Jesus Christ. The world is dark today. The light of the gospel shines bright. Are we proclaiming that as a witness to that light? Another thing I wrote down is, is repentance. John's message was dovetailed around the thought of repentance. And, I, and I've thought of it this way as I was thinking through this. Is I'm not trying to be too hard on you personally, but I think the church at large has learned to skip this doctrine of repentance. And it's so critical. And it's so critical in my life. We tend to make excuses for our own actions and our own sin. And John was calling the people to repentance. He called them to baptism. And I know the baptism of John was that of water. But, but the baptism of John and the message of John pointed to something greater than baptism by water only. He says, I came to baptize you with water, water, but there's one coming after me that will baptize you with fire. And I think today that is the message of John the Baptist that is relevant today. We need to be baptized with fire, speaking of the Holy Spirit. And it's a message of grace and truth. John says in John 1.17, speaking of Jesus Christ, that he would come in grace and truth. It's not grace or truth. It's not grace without truth or truth without grace. Jesus Christ came in grace and truth. 100% grace, 100% truth. The message of John the Baptist included the forgiveness of sins. John made it really clear that he himself 
could not forgive sin. But he pointed to one that could. In fact, as Jesus, I picture Jesus walking around that desert bush. And John says, behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the people. Taketh away, King James Version. Completely remove sin. There was no one in the past that could remove sin. In fact, all of the, all the lamb sacrifices only pointed us to our sin. But here is the Lamb of God, and John the Baptist introduces this Jesus, this Messiah, as the Lamb of God that taketh away our sins. Forgiveness of sins is only through Jesus Christ. And then last that I wrote down as John proclaimed in John 1.34 that Jesus is the very Son of God. He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. And we may hear something about that in the message today. As God chose to dwell with his people in the flesh. I can't comprehend it. Brother Rodney won't be able to explain it. Brother Kidron next week won't be able to explain deity in the flesh, but I believe it to be true. Just like Luke writes in these first few verses, what I have written are things that will come to pass that his people will believe, most surely believe among us. We believe it to be true. It is the gospel. And John only proclaimed the message. He was not the Savior, but he pointed to the Savior which was about to be born. And we praise God for that message this morning. We're going to go to prayer, and we will take prayer requests at this time. Uh, Brother Bill, I'd like to call on you for prayer. Uh, Gail? Okay, Sister Bernice's daughter's father-in-law, serious heart issues, and we'll lift him up in prayer. James. Any others? Joe? Sister Rhonda King, going in for surgery, uh, having to do with her cancer this Tuesday. I want to remember her that day, and we'll pray for her today. Other prayer requests? Okay, let's come before him in prayer.
one verse of number one Brother Rodney Kemmel and his wife and family is with us today. He really needs no introduction here among our people at Cornerstone. There are a few visitors. Uh, Rodney and his wife comes from our Berean congregation near Kokomo, Indiana, and we welcome them and turn the service over to you, Rodney. Good morning. Um, I, for one, am happy to be here. It feels like it used to be years ago when we would come out for uh, Fulmer Christmas or the Uncle Jerry's Christmas and be able to be with you guys around this time. And uh, I'm 
it's been a while since that's happened, and so that's why we're here ultimately. Um, you can go ahead and, and uh, turn to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be taking most of the text from Matthew chapter 2. Time is going to be against me uh, this morning, and that's probably okay. It usually is. Um, and I was thinking a little bit of how I felt about this message, and it's probably a message I'll need to, to hit again at some point. I don't know that I've ever really preached Christmas messages or a Christmas message. It's not that I'm against the birth of Christ, certainly I'm not, but it, it just usually I'm on something else or it doesn't fall to be my lot. But today it will be a Christmas message, and I would title this message His Star, and I want to deal with this subject of the wise men coming to worship our Savior, Christ. I also thought in terms of what does this message look like. Um, and it may seem a little silly, but I don't see this message as like a meat message. That's more like a black and blue salad. It's got the steak on top, but it's mostly lettuce. And it's good, and everybody agrees it's, it's good, and it might even fill us up. But it's not a thick piece of meaty doctrine and weight. And I think that's fine. I think that's acceptable. I think that it should be that way. But it's going to come across like it's meat. That's why I thought of it in black and blue salad. Any good black and blue salad has got layers of pan-grilled steak right on top of that lettuce and so we're going to find ourselves in the book of Daniel to start off with and many of you are familiar with Daniel the prophet Daniel and the students that have applied for Bible school this year will be being taught by Paul Skiles about Daniel and through the book of Daniel and I hope that if there's discrepancies which there likely will be and questions that arise which they're certain that there will be that you bring them up with Paul Skiles. I tried calling him last night, but then I realized he's over in, in Africa, so that didn't work out so good. <clears throat> but I want us to draw our attention. You don't have to turn there. You can, because I, I told you to stay in Matthew, but that's fine. But in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream, and he's very troubled about this dream. In fact, he's so troubled, and throughout this dream, and then when he wakes up, he actually forgets what his dream actually was. And so he calls the uh, magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to show him the dream and the meaning of the dream. Well, you know the story, they, they were unable to do this. In fact, their words in uh, verse 10 says, The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There's not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such thing in any musician, magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And, and note these, uh, this next verse. And it is a rare thing that the king requires. And there is none other than can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And I would agree. And Daniel agreed. That this was not a cause for mere men. You have... A commandment by the king that comes before and he draws all of the magicians, all of the astrologers, all of the learned men of that day into the hall of the king to tell the king what he dreamed about and the meaning of the dream. 
And they're saying this is impossible unless it were somebody that was outside of this world that were to be able to interpret not only the meaning of the dream, but what the dream was to begin with. We, as in other words, we cannot read your minds. Therefore, we cannot interpret your dream. And then verse 12, the, this caused the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Now, you know, these verses in the Bible, a lot of times they carry great weight in just about six, seven words. Very, very few words. Something great is said here. The king is angry and is going to kill all of the learned men that he has called in to deal with a heavy matter. These are tough times. These are perilous times. Probably they never considered that their lives would be at stake for not being able to tell the dream of a king. And now they're going to die. And so the decree goes forth in verse 13 that the wise men should be slain. And they sought Daniel and his followers to be his fellows to be slain also. So Daniel did not appear with these men. So then Daniel answers the counsel of the wisdom of Arach, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. And he answers, and he says to the king's captain, why is the decree so hasty from the king? And then Arach made the thing known to Daniel. And then Daniel went in and desires of the king. So this, and I know this is how I use up my time. I get off in the weeds a little bit, but it's to the point. I want you to understand, I, I, the, the fortitude of Daniel to walk in after he has now a death sentence. He walks in to appeal to the king and says this. He desires of the king that he would give him time. And that he would show the king the interpretation. So then Daniel goes back to his house in verse 17. And he makes the thing known to Hanai, Mishael, Azariah, and his companions. That they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So he's made an appeal to the king, and now he's going to appeal to, the, to God in heaven that God would show him the vision, the secret that had came to this king. Now, then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision, verse 19, and then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings. He sets up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things, and he knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. These are wonderful, illustrious words of our God. And then he says, I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hast given me wisdom and might and hast made known unto me now that we desired of thee, for thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. So he says, you've told us what no other man was able to know, and we thank you. And so then now Daniel goes into the king, into Arioch, which is the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Now, what I want to piggyback off of in moving forward in this message is I want to point out this. Not only does Daniel deliver the interpretation of the dream by God and then to the king, but he makes one very, very important decision. He says, destroy not the wise men of Babylon. 
What kind of lasting impression, talk about legacy this morning, does that leave with men and generations of men? You have been issued a death sentence. Your life is on the line for your inability to do a matter. Another man steps in and has a, a vision and an appeal made before a God of heaven. Remember, they said this thing cannot be done unless the gods, not made of flesh, were to, de to deliver this message, to expose the secret thing. And God does that through the prophet Daniel. And Daniel spares the life of these men in this city, Babylon. The thing that I find interesting is this is not the first time that Daniel shows up the wise men in this city. It was a magnificent city, and I believe if my history that I've read about Nebuchadnezzar is right, he was one of the greatest of all Babylon's kings, and they would have, they would have created magnificent palaces and, and gardens and hanging gardens with, with flat. I mean, it just would have been a, a, a magnificent city to be a part of. But Daniel was through his reign at least two, maybe three other times, was called before this king, and he performs things that these wise men could not perform because the Most High God was with him. Not only was he able to do that, he was also appointed in a very high position multiple times. And then with other kings following Nebuchadnezzar, Darius comes to mind. So where am I going with this this morning? Because I, for one, need to make the transition from this time period into the time that Christ would come into the world. I need to make the transition that when we get into Matthew chapter 2, which is the only of the four Gospels that records these wise men coming to give honor to the king that is to be born king of the Jews. Now, in case you're wondering, I chose honor the king on purpose because the Bible actually says they didn't come to honor him. They came to worship him. And I think there's a distinction. It isn't that we don't honor God. It isn't that we don't honor the Most High. It is more to the point that when we worship him, we honor him. But worship is a much greater distinction than honoring. We honor the position of the President of the United States, but we do not worship the President of the United States. They came from a foreign country to the small strip of land called Israel to worship the King of the Jews, the Messiah. And so the transition for me is Daniel's legacy, and so thank you, brother, for that this morning, was that he served the most high and only true God. And that lasting impression, not only what we find in these stories, but also I want to draw your attention to Daniel chapter 9. And by no means do I have Daniel chapter 9 memorized. I tried doing the math on the way here and last night. And I struggle a little bit because dating and all of that. So I'm just not going to get into it, not only for the sake of time, but also for the sake of my own 
how I would appear, I guess. Let's just put it that way. I don't want to say pride because I do lack that, I think, or I hope. But I just am saying this. I don't have the dates figured out. But what is very clear from Scripture is this. Is in the beginning of Daniel chapter 9, it says, In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of this reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years whereof the, prop, the word of the Lord came to the Jeremiah the prophet. So Daniel is reading through the prophet Jeremiah, and he comes to a passage that, that, re, that reminds him or brings to mind that soon there is going to be the 70 years that are going to be accomplished in the desolation of Jerusalem. So the people of, of Israel have been carried out captive from their land, and now he's reading this with hope that soon the 70 years that they have been in Babylon will be accomplished, and they will be restored. And so he pleads in this ninth chapter and for the sins of the people. He's praying, he's repenting, he's intercessing. Maybe that word could be used. And during that time, Gabriel comes. Did I get that right? It's Gabriel, right? Somebody give me a, a verse if you're there. 20, yeah, 20 and 21. And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And this is one of the fascinating passages of Scripture where if you were to time out, and we don't know that everything that he prayed necessarily, but... If, if you started at the beginning when he said he set his face in the verse 3 and what to this point, he's only about a minute and a half in, but it's probably much longer than that. So if you're, if you're wondering, if, if you're trying to do the math on how fast angels fly, I don't know that you can set your time exactly, and, and we, we just don't know. But we, what we do know is that when this prayer went out from the time, Gabriel has come and he's bringing news to Daniel. In response to his prayer, I mean, there's a lot of fascinating things that just touch this story, even the fact that it's the same angel, Gabriel, that comes to, help me out, yes, thank you, so this thing, this is a, this is a, it seems like a big picture thing, but it's really pretty narrow in God's mind, he's got the same angel working on the same case with the same prophet Daniel, the same vision. And so he says, At the beginning of my supplication, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved, and therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. So then he says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression. So he, he goes further, and he says, And to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to be, bring in the everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophesy and to anoint the most holy. So there's like six things that he lists out here. And then he says, and know this, knowing therefore understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah. I'm going to pause. So what he's saying is Gabriel has given him a very, very specific time period he says, from the time that the decree goes forward to restore and build the walls of Jerusalem, from that time until the time of the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. 
And then the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And then after threescore and two weeks, each shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince shall come and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And to the end of the war of desolations are determined. I'm just going to stop there. That's heavy. But what we can all agree is that we have a very specific time stamp that says it's starting here and it's going to end here after these, say, 434 years or 483 years from the time that the decree goes forward. So the wise men in Babylon and those that would have had this letter and had this writing would have known from the time that the walls were said to be have built and that decree goes out they would have known that from that time then the clock is ticking and we've got messiah the, the king is going to come right the king of israel the king the god of daniel the prophet daniel now coupled with isaiah 60 and numbers 24 and other prophecies in the scriptures, we know that Jesus' birth was foretold. But to the point of when we get into Matthew chapter 2, it says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. So I at least hope that that kind of fortifies a, a great and, and very probable cause as why those men came from that region and what they had been tipped off by, a, by literally a timetable that had been presented to them by a man that was very, very heavily honored and esteemed among their culture. And remind, reminding you that they had to be convinced of the prophecy themselves. Now, I would be pretty convinced if my life had been spared or my great-grandfather's life had been spared by a man that was able to tell the dream and the interpretation without knowing the dream, none of the wise men could do, but yet God gave to Daniel. That would be impressive indeed. Now, I want to point something out before we get into to chapter 2 here, and I hope we're not jumping around or moving too fast. And... Like I said, this could be a potential uh, side road and in, in opening um, yet another thought in this. And I think it is to the point of dealing with the wise men and being led of God to worship Christ is in the gospel according to Matthew. If you go back just a chapter, beginning of the book, you have the uh, generations of Jesus Christ. It says, the son of David, the son of Abraham... It says, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, and Judas begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar, and Perez begat Isram, and Isram begat Aram, Aram begat Abinadab, and Abinadab begat uh, Nason, and Nason begat Salom, and Salom begat Boaz of Rechab, and Boaz begat Obed, and Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. I'm going to point something out in just those short verses. A Jewish historian and writer, Matthew, records, I count four Gentiles in the lineage of Christ. We have Tamar that Judah had that goes into. 
And then we have Rahab in verse 5, and also Ruth, bringing us to 3. And then yet a fourth one that it says, it could have just said Bathsheba, but it says of her that had been the wife of Uriah, who was a Hittite. Uriah also was a Gentile. And so we, we see, I, I see at least, the emphasis of Matthew to provide to our readers, which would have been Jewish as well, a very emphatic presentation of Gentiles or people from the nations that were included in Christ's line. And I don't want to miss that because as we end up the Gospel of, of Matthew, we have the presentation to go into all of the world's into all of the nations preaching and teaching and baptizing all that I have spoken to you. So I think that we, we at least see that Matthew's emphasis in, in the beginning and the end of his gospel, and I would say even throughout, is on Christ coming to the nations. And so I think in my mind when I read this in Matthew chapter 2, one of the reasons that Matthew, the gospel writer, has included this of these wise men, of these astronomers or, or whomever they were in actuality that came from the Far East, most likely Babylon, from the culture that, that, that had been saturated in some way or at least guided in some way by Daniel, have now come to Jerusalem. But the fascinating thing is it says this, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east they've seen a star they don't say a sign they don't even say a wonder in the heavens they're very specific that they were guided and led in whatever fashion to jerusalem by seeing a star in the sky and they associate that with none other than the messiah the christ the king of israel and we came and we came in verse two to worship him and I want to emphasize that because in this time of, of Christmas songs and, and all that is displayed, it's very easy to kind of just fall into a trap of familiarity. But these men, however many there were, there, if there could have been two, there could have been three, there could have been 33. They could have came with an army when they came into Israel to protect their valuables on this, on this journey. But when they came into this city, and I think there was a lot of them, they came with one primary intention, and that was to worship Christ. That's fascinating to me. Something else that's fascinating in this story is this, that when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. And now there could be speculation as to why was he troubled. It could be just what I said. He's bringing a group of people with him, and he's intimidated or maybe he's worried that we have now we have amassed a great army outside of our city that is seeking the king of the jews and they're not seeking me they're seeking somebody else that's been born king of the jews because they see me and that's not who they came to worship they didn't come to honor king herod they didn't even come to worship king herod they came to honor they came to worship christ and he was troubled and i want to I want to draw this out. It says, heard these things. So to the point, I think it was more that they had came to worship a king. I don't think it had even as much to do with how many they had brought, potentially. But all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. 
And we had gathered all the chief priests. And note this, we, we need to build uh, a description of who is there, who is present at this time. We have gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, and he demanded of them where Christ should be born. So we have the chief priests, the governing officials in, of, of Israel, the religious leaders, and the scribes, and Herod and probably his inner court, those that are close to him, his confidants, they're there. And he demands, this is Herod now in verse 4, he demands of them where Christ should be born. Now, it's inferred, or at least I see it, that they came to Jerusalem because it was the capital city. And I expect that the wise men, when they got there, expected not to be questioned. I think that when they got to Jerusalem, they expected to see rejoicing. I think they expected to see celebration. I, see, I think that their expectations were probably pretty thrashed when they get there. And the very king and the courts don't have an answer for them. They want to worship this man, this baby that is born king of the Jews, and we have no answers. We have no answers for you. But we'll consult the religious leaders and the scribes, and we'll get this thing figured out. So they're there, and they said unto him, this is a, a quotation from Micah, he's born in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet Micah. And, and then... Matthew includes that. And I, I just, this is kind of an aside, but just when you question where all of these prophecies are concerning Christ, just read through Matthew. He's provided them. If you go back in the end of chapter 1, we have Isaiah 7, and now we're starting in here um, with Micah. And thou, Bethlehem, verse 6, and the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. So they get an answer of where, right? So then Herod says when he had privately called the wise men, so he, he gets them alone by themselves, him and these wise men, says he diligently inquires of them what time the star appeared. That means he wants accuracy. Herod is asking the wise men, when did you see this star? When did it appear? And I want to I draw this thought down a little bit because so many Christmas cards and so much emphasis with the star is showing it is to be so prominent that everyone in the world could see it. And yet, the very place that is six miles away from the event that it took place and the king and all of Israel don't even know what time it appeared. Do you find that strange? I do. I find that very strange. That the very place that this event takes place, that they came to following a star and the people in that city don't even know what time that star appeared. There's been a lot of speculation as to what that star is. I think in 1605, Johannes Kepler, he said that it was a conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter and Mars. And as they, those celestial bodies would unite, it would create a, a luminous, a very bright object unmistakable in the sky, perhaps. 
Perhaps it was a supernova. It was a star being born that be so bright that at night that it could cast shadows, potentially. Maybe it was like the Shekinah glory that would move before. And you, we kind of get at that, that later when it says that it, it went before them and stood over the house where the child was. I don't know. The one thing I do know is that they had seen his star. It doesn't say stars, plural. But then again, Genesis doesn't say planets either. So, I don't know. And I don't know that it's pertinent to this story. I'm okay with a bit of mystery in the scriptures. But what I will say is that whatever they saw was not seen by King Herod. Or at least to the point that he was aware of it, or when it first began. So he says... He asked what time the star appeared, and, and then he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. But note this, it's six miles away. Even you folks, even some of you that are not able-bodied, if you thought the king of the Jews, the Messiah, was six miles away, wouldn't you go? Honestly. You know how it is in the summer and somebody's burning trash and it looks like their whole house is on fire? And you're like, we're going to go there. You've got plans that evening. Maybe food's on the grill and you're like, we're going to see where that fire's at. And you just go. You waste 30 to 40 minutes of your time just driving through the country. But here we have the very proclamation of the king of Israel is come, the Messiah, the prince of peace that has come to save a people from their sins and the very king of that City says, why don't you go and you tell me what you find? Cares not about this Jesus. King Herod was a wicked man. A wicked man and he did not indeed want to worship him as the scripture says. And, they, and when they had heard the king, they departed and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Because it had confirmed they did not make this trip in vain. All of that commotion in Israel, stressing the whole people out, and not getting any answers other than it is in Bethlehem, and now they leave the city, and God confirms to them it's not in vain. This is true. You have indeed, indeed came to see the Messiah. And when they were coming to the house, and I want to note this, it was the manger. I believe that it was much time later after Christ had been born. Could have been six months, could have been a year, could have been two years if you go by when the star appeared two years and they get things and they make the journey. I don't know, but I do think that we probably need to adjust our manger scenes a bit. I'm not suggesting that you bring the wise men in in July, but if that's your thing, go ahead. But the point is that they come into the house in verse 11. They see the young child with Mary, his mother. They fall down and they worship him. They made that long journey. And, and I want to I draw down on this thought again is because you don't make a journey clear from Babylon, clear from the land of Persia and the Medes and Persians, and note this, they're not sending ambassadors like King Herod is doing for six miles. They sent the best of the best. And not only did they come themselves to worship, but they bring gifts. 
They had expectation and they had confidence that the prophecy that, that Daniel had said would come to pass, that God would not leave them without this sign being truly a revelation and a prophecy that was in fact true, that God would send a savior of mankind. And I just, I look at this and I think how fantastic that, that, that God shows a sign possibly 700, 800 miles away to a people that were not Jewish. This is a very Jewish story of Jesus. These are very Jewish people. We don't feel that, and maybe we shouldn't feel that, because we're his. But I look at that and I say, God's sovereignty, providentially giving these Men, a sign is a testimony not only to God in his love and his great love to, to, to pass 800 miles, but also a testimony potentially to men that had trusted in the true and living God that far away from Jerusalem and that were waiting expectantly. Well, right smack up against six miles away, they missed it. Now, there's a lesson there, and I think it's pretty obvious. And when they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, love the King James language because they were treasures, they presented unto him gifts of gold. I don't think it was just one thing of gold. I think it was lots of gold and frankincense and myrrh and being warned of God in a dream. They should not return to Herod. They departed into their own country another way. You know, in our Sunday school, we, we debated a little bit about why do Jonathan was killed. It was because God allowed it. God set that to be the course of action. Here we have men that have traveled, and God takes providential care to make sure they don't die before returning to their country with the good news that Jesus Christ has been born in peace unto the earth, that through this man he will bring all nations to him, that they may believe that there is a Savior of mankind. And when they departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, flee into Egypt, and be there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son in Hosea 11.1. 1. Closing here, but just I want to mention what happens here in, in verse 16 to the end of the chapter. It was not a strange thing for Herod to, to do such a thing as we find him doing. After he finds out that the wise men did not return to him with the news of the newborn baby, he kills all of the young infants, two years and younger, which indicates that time period of what they had told him. I don't know if it was 20 little baby boys that died. I don't know if it was 200. It wasn't a very big town. Micah said it wasn't a very big town. We know historically it wasn't. But I've often thought, a lot of loss of life around the time of Jesus' birth. And yet, and this is my thought, it seems like such a bloody spectacle when he sent his son and we're rejoicing on that. But I think that 
to the point of in an apologetic theme, it gave even more credence to the fact of Jesus being the one that was born when he was prophesied to being born and his life was spared while all these other boys in that two-year time period were killed. You think about the probability of that happening. It'd be very, very slim that one would arise and say, I'm the Messiah and actually be a false prophet. But we know Christ was not a false prophet. And we have the testimony of his life and his death. But if he had not been brought into this world as God with us, none of us would be here. None of us would have a hope of resurrection. None of us would have hope, period. And that is that our sins have been washed, that there's put an end to our sinning. In the eyes of God, that his blood is sufficient to cover our sins and to forgive us. And I feel like that message is now being conveyed to all of the world. And I just think it's such a blessing that the Lord did not keep it to only his people Israel, but he shared it with the nations, just like he shared the birth of his son with Babylon. What shall we sing?